Well, we continue on in our study, and we press on in our study in the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. And although we'll be focusing on verses 11 through 14, uh, for the sake of context, we'll begin our time reading starting in verse 6. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6. Church, this is God's holy and living word. We read, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. Verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of go bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Amen. Bow with me in a word of prayer. O oh Lord, as we turn the attentions of our hearts and our minds to your word, we pray that you would teach us not only what we want to know, but what we need to know. By the Spirit, keep us humble in the school of Christ as we learn more of who we are in light of your holiness that we are but fallen creatures with hardened and darkened consciences. But in recognizing this, O oh Father, help us to never lose sight of our very need for the Savior, Christ Jesus. Let us never forget that apart from Him, that we're not only nothing, but can do utterly nothing. Open our understanding to know Your Word. And not only to know your word, but ultimately do your word in all faithfulness and obedience. Reveal now to us the wonderful and marvelous counsels and works of the blessed Trinity. This we pray in the name and by the cleansing blood of our beloved Savior Jesus. Amen. Amen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I think many of you, if not all of you, would agree 
that John 3.16, the verse that I just read, is perhaps one of the most well-known and most frequently recited of verses from Scripture, used and quoted even by those who don't hold fast to the Christian faith. Though familiar to many of us, to our ears, for those who seriously consider the meaning of this verse, we often find that John 3.16 is a verse that often leaves its readers asking the question of how. How did the Son of God obtain and secure the right to give everlasting life? What did the Son of God do that gave Him the sole power and authority to give unto others that gift that we just read here of eternal life? Well, as a people of the book, of the Bible, we thoroughly believe here that Scripture alone best interprets Scripture. And if there's any one passage found within the Bible that most clearly answers the how of John 3.16, it's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through 14. An answer that's established and built upon the very blood of Jesus Christ. Now, as Christians, we often talk about the importance of Calvary's cross, the necessity of Christ's sacrifice in regard to atonement. But we need to make sure and very clear that whenever we consider the doctrine of salvation, that we never neglect nor forget the profound magnitude, the power and the significance of Christ's blood. Well did P.T. Forsyth, a Scottish theologian, write that the blood of Christ stands not simply for the sting of sin on God, but the scourge of God upon sin. Not simply for God's sorrow over sin, but for God's wrath upon sin. In other words, as the church of Christ, it's for us to remember and to know that the blood of the Lamb is central to the message that we preach here. That it's central and foundational to our Christian message. And this is the very reason for why you'll often hear us and find us singing here at this church songs proclaiming about the very blood of Jesus Christ. And we just did that, did we not? We just sung about the blood of Christ. We've sung bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his what? His blood. Thus enabling us and compelling us to sing hallelujah. What a savior. If there's one passage in Scripture that we can point to that best exalts the blood of Jesus, it's the one that we'll be focusing and studying tonight. Verses 11 through 14 demonstrates to us why Jesus' sacrificial death was not only necessary, but how and why His blood is the very source of our joy and strength. It most clearly demonstrates to us the love of God who made the most costliest of provisions so that sinners like you and me 
can draw near to God the Father. Well, as we keep all of this in mind, there are three things that the writer has to tell us tonight regarding the blood of Christ, which will also serve as our outline. And uh, I'm going to provide them to you here. The outline goes like this. First, the superiority of Christ's blood. Second, the power of Christ's blood. Third and lastly, the purpose of Christ's blood. The superiority and the power and the purpose of his blood. Well, we begin first with the superiority of his blood. Last week, the writer, he tells us, and if I can summarize, that through all the various aspects of the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit was using all of these things to illustrate for us and to us a picture. He was indicating to his people and to us as his readers that the earthly and physical tabernacle of old was demonstrating a very specific and simple lesson. The lesson being, if you can recall, that access to God, that access to God had been barred. That access to God had been prohibited solely because of sin. And not only did the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies communicate that access to God had been restricted, but we also learned that it had been severely limited. Limited in the sense that it was restricted to a single day of the year on the Day of Atonement. Limited in that the priests who entered into that tabernacle were first required to make sacrifices for themselves who then in turn would offer up animal sacrifices on behalf of the sins of men. And to make matters worse, the sacrifices that were offered were solely meant for the sins, if you noticed, that were committed in ignorance. And so we find that the writer of Hebrews paints, he paints the old covenant to be one that was thoroughly and utterly broken at every single level. That there existed within that old system a a system of barriers that prevented sinners from freely coming and approaching God. And again, through all of this, the Holy Spirit was indicating and teaching His people day after day, year after year, century after century, that something far better had to happen. Someone far greater needed to come. That a better priest was to be expected. A better sacrifice necessary. And a better blood that is to be required. And all of this to point to to the fact that if our consciences, that inward part of who we are, if that conscience conscience is to be ever cleansed, if we're to ever experience true peace with God and to have free access to Him, then something much greater needed to happen. Something that goes far beyond than just taking care of the mere externals needed to take place. And that because that external things can never deal 
with the internal realities of the human heart. That because a guilty conscience could never be dealt with nor resolved by external measures. This is the message of verses 1 through 10. That that old system, that deficient, inadequate, insufficient system of the old covenant, that it was put into place. It was originally imposed by God until the time of Reformation. And the time of Reformation is then described for us beginning in verse 11. Let's read this together again. We read, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. Well, we find here that the Old Testament, that it constantly looked forward to something greater It looked forward to the good things to come, namely the cleansing of the conscience and the confidence to draw near to God. The confidence to draw near to God, which thus arrived and ultimately culminated and was fulfilled in the priestly work and person of Christ. And as we continue to read, we find that Jesus accomplished the good things to come By passing through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. And how does he enter within that tabernacle? Verse 12, we continue to read, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. In the book of Hebrews, as many of you know very well by now, that the writer's primary method in arguing for the supremacy of Christ, which is the theme of this book, is by comparing the lesser to the greater. And we find another example of that here in verse 12, specifically found within that little expression, but with his own blood. We immediately find here that within, or we we immediately find here the writer underscoring and painting for us this vast and infinite contrast between the blood of animals to the blood of Christ. And it's in the superiority of Christ's blood. And notice that Jesus enters into the true heavenly tabernacle. And how many times does he do that? How often does he do that? We read here, once for all. Meaning, once and never to be entered in again. The work of the priest and the work of the sacrifice never to be repeated again. Well, unlike the covenant of old where the priest... uh, specifically high priest, would make sacrifices within the tabernacle time and time again on the Day of Atonement. The writer tells us here that Jesus accomplished the real thing that the shadows and types of the old pointed to. Now, if you were to take a step back and observe the contrast between the old and the new, the high priest to the great high priest, the blood of goats and bulls to the blood of Christ, you'd quickly come to 
recognize that there's a, a heightening, an intensification taking place in the background here. With all that took place underneath that old covenant, with all that the Holy Spirit was indicating and illustrating through all of the ceremonies and sacrifices, and for all of those Israelites wondering to themselves, how in the world could the blood of bulls and goats take away my sins? We find here that God remedies all of that once and for all by sending His Son who would enter into that tabernacle once. And why only once, you might wonder? Because He has in Himself that all-sufficient sacrifice, which is nothing other than His own sacrificial death. Because of the superiority of His blood, you see. When you consider this, you begin to see and realize why Jesus is the true and better priest. Yes, because He's divine, as we've studied in the past. Yes, because He's the Son of God. Yes, because He's the kingly priest from the line of Melchizedek. But what we find here specifically, what we read here, and what the writer's trying to tell us is that Jesus is the true and better priest, the true and better sacrifice because of His blood. Remembering all of those other priests who's come before, offering up the blood of another, the blood of animals that at the end of the, at the, end of the day simply symbolized external cleansing. While Jesus, unlike any other, we find that He enters into the tabernacle on behalf and through His own sacrificial death by offering up His own blood. He accomplished something that no priest could have ever done or imagined to do. And as we consider this, beloved, we need to, as we consider this, marvel at this very fact. We need to marvel at the fact that before Christ, before pre-crucifixion, that there had never in the history of mankind ever been a priest who was willing, nor was able, nor was worthy enough to offer up himself to God as the perfect sacrifice for sins. Year after year, decade after, after decade, Century after century, how many bulls, how many goats, how many lambs had to have been slain. But year after year, as those animals were slaughtered and their blood spilled, it was through these things that the Holy Spirit was demonstrating that one day, that one day, God will send something far greater than any bull. That He would send for His people something greater than any lamb or any goat. But that He would send for His people a Son. His Son. We find that it's not only through the superiority of Christ's blood that He enters into that tabernacle once for all. But as we continue to read that it's through that same blood that Christ 
obtained eternal redemption. Now, if you were to read this in the Greek, you would find that the word that's used here for obtain is written as what grammarians would label it as an emphatic middle. Some grammar here for you. Which means that Jesus didn't just obtain eternal redemption. But the more literal understanding here would be that Jesus obtained eternal redemption by himself. He did what no other priest could have ever dreamed of doing. He's not only brought hope for redemption. He not only made a way for salvation. But he secured eternal redemption by himself. Christ himself fully obtained what he sought out to do and he secured by himself that which he was sent by his Father to secure. Friends, I've asked you many times as we've studied through this book, as we've studied throughout Hebrews, and I ask of you once again, but I want you to place yourselves in the shoes of an Israelite living underneath that old covenant. I want you to imagine with me, after, day, after the Day of Atonement, which is the holiest and the most important day on Israel's calendar, after the Day of Atonement, after all the sacrifices were made and done, do you know what the best thing you could have said to yourself is? The best thing that you could have said to yourself living underneath that old covenant was, Well, that covers the sins of ignorance for the past year. That's all you could have said. The greatest thing and the greatest news that you could have ever preached to yourself after Yom Kippur is that my sins have been forgiven for the past year and that's it. All because the sacrifices of old did not address defiant sins. All because it failed to address willful sins, nor was it able to address the sins for the year to come. And so all that you could do, all that you could do as you, as you, as you were bound by that old covenant, all that you were able to do underneath that old system was wait. We find that underneath that old covenant, It was, as you might understand here, a near impossibility to feel any sense of assurance. At the end of the day, you could never feel any peace that your sins have been fully dealt with. Always unsure if your sins have been fully forgiven or not. But this is where we find the good news, is it not? We find the good news as we read in verse 11, If you look down again, we read, but Christ. And oh, what great news we find in these two words, do we not? But Christ. He comes and He offers Himself once and for all time, never again to be repeated in order that He Himself would secure annual redemption, temporary redemption, partial redemption. No. We read He secures eternal redemption. 
Redemption communicates the idea of being freed. Freed from the penalty and power of sin. And this redemption obtained by Christ himself is eternal in the sense that that which all of the Old Testament types and shadows pointed to has now been perfectly and completely fulfilled in Jesus. And beloved, the superiority of Christ's blood can be found in this, that opposed to what the blood of bulls and goats temporarily accomplished, the blood of Christ accomplished forever. Brothers and sisters, I ask you this very night, what kind of redemption has been provided for you by your high priest? Do you recognize it to be a redemption that merely covers some of your sin? Is it a redemption that has an expiration date? For any of you who doubt or struggle to recognize both the quality and the duration of such a redemption in Christ, it's for you to look to this very passage tonight. And it's for you to remind yourself through God's word that because of the superiority of Christ's blood, this is a trustworthy redemption that truly covers all of your sins. And this is a redemption that lasts forever unto eternity. That you can be well assured because of the superiority of the blood of the Lamb of God. Be encouraged and know that in the superiority of Christ's blood, that there exists a boldness for you to enter into the presence of God. Verse 13, the writer then begins, or rather he brings everything back full circle, and we read this, verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ? Now we've seen and we've read all throughout the book of Hebrews many of the contrasts from the lesser to the greater. We read, but now. We've read, but God, but He, as we just studied, but Christ. But now what we find here in verse 13, 14 rather is the crescendo of all contrasts. We find it culminated in verse 14 as we read these tremendous words. How much more? And it's within these three words, how much more, that we find the very heart of the writer's argument within Hebrews. We find that in all of the symbolism, all of the shadow of old pointed to the very fact, pointed to the very one who was and is the very embodiment of those three words. How much more? How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead work? Well, you see, it was the great high priest of God and the Lamb of God, both priest and sacrifice in one, that Christ offered up, not by force, 
but he offered up himself. It was the superiority of his priesthood and the superiority of his blood that allowed him to offer up himself. Never in the history of Israel did any bull or goat offer itself up to be sacrificed. All of the sacrifices made under that old covenant were involuntary. But we find here, we read here, that all of a sudden in the history, the story of redemption, that Christ enters in, He comes in willingly, and He volunteers to offer up Himself to God as the true and final sacrifice, as the Lamb without any spot or blemish. Friends, it's through the superior sacrifice and blood of Christ that we find that there can be real, authentic, and genuine cleansing. That we can know beyond the shadow of doubt with full assurance that all of our sins have been washed away and our consciences freed from from the burden of guilt. Which then leads us to our second point. Because of the superiority of Christ's blood, We find within his blood the very power to cleanse the conscience. Commentator Richard Phillips, he writes, he rightly notes, that there is no greater burden in this world than the guilt of our sin. He writes this, Other burdens weary the feet or the back, but the burden of sin wearies the soul. We don't often consider our conscience as a serious problem when it comes to God, but we need to, and we must. The American writer Mark Twain, he observed that man is the only animal that blushes and the only animal that needs to. And although he wasn't a believer, Twain, he rightly recognized that humanity had a major problem with sin. And the purpose of what he wrote and why he wrote what he wrote was to point out the fact that men and women are naturally full of shame. That there is much to be blushed about. And that because of sin. As Christians, we know that anyone who isn't forgiven by God has within themselves a fallen, a darkened, and hardened conscience a seared and calloused conscience that naturally manifests itself by driving that person away from God. It's a troubled conscience, in other words, that instead of being able to look to God, makes you want to run away and hide from God. And I think we can all agree that more often than not, that it's a troubled conscience that keeps us far from God. It's a fallen conscience, a sin-infected and infested conscience that separates us from our Creator. Yet despite in recognizing this, friends, I want you to notice something here. And especially for those of you who are without Christ this evening, I need you to listen very carefully to what I'm about to tell you here. And it's this. Is that Christianity is the only hope 
the only religion, the only news, and the only way that you can clear your conscience. At the end of the day, there are only two kinds of religion that exist, if you want to put it, in this world. Those based on human achievement and those based on divine accomplishment. One demands that you earn your way to heaven, while the other demands that you trust in Jesus Christ alone. Every other religion apart from Christianity is man working his way to God, which can never clear the conscience. While Christianity is God working his way to men, and that by sending his Son so that He might obtain for us by Himself eternal redemption to clear our conscience through the power of His blood, you see. Now there may be some of you in here tonight who've gone and have attended church week in and week out for years and years and years and only to find yourself in the very same place where you've started. There may be maybe others of you in here who sought out to do much good, volunteered, served in some way just to ease your conscience. But despite all your actions, you still feel deep within you that weight of sin and guilt, that very burden of the soul, and all that because you have yet to simply come and trust in the power of Christ's blood. Unbelieving friends here tonight, if this describes you, oh, how I plead with you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. The Word of God is sure to promise you the gift of salvation and assurance. That you can be well assured of a conscience cleansed with the blood of Christ. A peace and a, and a freedom that promises to you that your sins have been thoroughly washed clean. That your father doesn't hold any of your sins against you. And that because he's put it all upon his own son. Judged and fully paid for upon the cross with his own blood. Never to bring it, bring it up again. And thus, why are we seeing Jesus paid it all? Now looking back down again to our text, I want you to notice. That at the end of Christ's superior blood and the power found therein is not ultimately to cleanse the fallen conscience, but we read at the end of verse 14 that it's to serve the living God. Meaning that the end result of having a cleansed conscience is a life lived out for God, which is where we now transition to our third and final point, the purpose of Christ's blood. The purpose of having a cleansed conscience by the power of Christ's superior blood is worship. It's worship. In the Old Covenant, as it, as it was only for the priests, as we've studied in the past, only for the priests, those with the right last name who could walk into the tabernacle, 
as it was only for the high priest drawn by lot who was ever able to enter within the holy of holies. We find that now in the blood of the Son, both in its superiority and its power, we find that access to God, which had once been barred, now burst open and freely accessible to all who are found in Christ. That through the blood of Jesus, as Apostle John writes in Revelation 1.6, that He has made us kings and priests to His God and Father. That through the blood of the Lamb of God, as Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9, that those who are in Christ are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a a people for God's own possession. And it's for those who are saved by the superior and powerful blood of Christ that we are now purposefully fashioned and called into the priestly service of God. Brothers and sisters, when we consider the wonderful work of grace that has brought us and ushered us into salvation. That's made clear and freed our conscience from sin. We need to do, what we need to do and ask is that all-important question of why. Why? And what? And what is it for? The purpose for why It's not simply for our own benefit, though there are benefits. It's not merely that we should escape a much-deserved judgment, much less that we should live a quiet and affluent Christian existence, but rather that God would rightfully have for Himself a fitting priesthood. A fitting priesthood that solely exists for the service and praise of His name. In other words, the cleansing of Christ's blood upon the sinner is not the end, but only the beginning for the Christian. The Greek word that we find here used for serve is a word that's often associated to the duties of priests. This to say that for those of us who've had our consciences cleansed by the superior and powerful powerful blood of Christ, God has purposed for us. He has assigned and charged us as His royal priesthood to serve Him. Just as the priest of old entered into the holy place to light the lampstand, so we too are called to serve as the light bearers of Christ for all the world to see. Just as the priests of old came and sent up incense before God's throne, so we too are called to be ministers of intercessory prayer with real access to the throne of God. And just as the priests of old brought out the showbread to lay it upon that table, so we too are called to be priests who go out into the world to point the lost, to feast upon Christ who is Himself the very bread of life. And like the Old Testament priests, beloved, our service that takes place, 
Our service that takes place as the royal priesthood of God takes place with the veil torn in two. Free and unbarred with God's presence unhindered and our service readily accepted in Christ. We were made. We were saved and redeemed through His blood to worship Him and that through serving Him. And it's in our service to Him that we can truly discover what true freedom is. The great Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon, he writes, To serve the living God is necessary to the happiness of a living man. For this end we were made and we miss the, de the design of our making if we do not honor our Maker. For man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And if we miss that end, we are ourselves are the most terrible of losers. The service of God is the element in which alone we can fully live. Church, we've been saved and called to live gloriously and to be busy in the service of serving God. Our conscience cleansed from dead works. Those dead, dead works that the world is so busy about doing. Works that, is, if, if not sinful, are certainly pointless and dead from the perspective of eternity. Building up empires that will fall. Investing in things that are temporary. Striving after ambitions that are destined for the grave. But Christian, it's for those of us in Christ to know. That what we do for Him here on this earth, in our service, is sure to carry on beyond the grave, lasting forever in heaven where Christ reigns now as the great high priest upon the throne at the right hand of the living God. To neglect God and to refuse His service to deny His presence and rule after the cleansing of the conscience is not only a failure to live up to the great calling in which we have been called, but it's to shrink back into the dust with which we were made. To fail to do what we were ultimately created and redeemed by God to do. Brothers and sisters, let us therefore be busy in carrying out the business of our dear Savior. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, as we draw to a close now, I want to end our time together by going back to where we began and that by answering the question of how. How did the Son of God obtain and secure the right to give everlasting life? What did the Son of God do that gave Him the sole power and authority and jurisdiction to give unto others that gift of everlasting life? And the answer is simply this. The blood of Christ. It's in the superiority and the power of His blood that gives Him the grounds to give that gift 
that gift of everlasting life to all who come and trust in Him. Well, Pillar Baptist Church, we have been cleansed, have we not? Cleansed and purified to serve our Lord and to live for His glory now and forevermore. And because of what Christ has done as our great high priest and because of His blood as the Lamb of God, because He has cleansed our conscience and has obtained it by Himself, a redemption in that for eternity. Brothers and sisters, let us then live up to our great calling to which we have been called. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, it's only before Your cross that we can most clearly see the wickedness of our sin. Those iniquities that cause the Son of God to be made a curse on our behalf. O Lord, in the midst of our confession now, help us not to dwell in our misery, but to look up to Christ. And as we gaze upon Him who is our Savior, Assist us to walk humbly in the lowest depths of humiliation, bathed in His blood, tender of conscience, victoriously working out our salvation in the service for Your glory and Your glory alone. We pray all this to the praise of God the Father, and the blood of Christ the Son, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, three in one, one in three. Amen.